I am amazed. Boy, this is tall. This must have been built for you. That's not what I was amazed at. But, uh, you know, I appreciate all of you, each and every one, coming out at 8 a.m. Well, actually, earlier to get here. Uh, that is, I had about 60 ounces of coffee, so I'm fine. Seriously, I, I did. I have had, I've been up for a few hours and. If I run out of here really fast, it's only because the 60 ounces uh, are still there, and never mind, we'll move on. But uh, I'm so glad to be able to do this uh, and appreciate the opportunity. Anytime, every week that I dig into the Word of God, I am just amazed. I am staggered at what I see and just overwhelmed at the beauty of Christ. And in particular, uh, again, this... This subject uh, of the kenosis, when I was asked and told that this would possibly be my topic, I thought, oh, I love that passage. But I will just tell you right now that in studying it again, it was totally new and fresh and vibrant and convicting and exhorting once again. I remember and he mentioned I was in seminary and am and I had to do a paper this last semester in Old Testament and it was open-ended. Our professor, Dr. Lewis, he doesn't like to just assign a topic and have all 60 of us write the same thing because he said, I'll be honest with you, it's not to your advantage because about number 45, I'm tired of it. And he said, I start to get I don't really, nitpicky and you suffer. So he said, I want you to do whatever you want. So it's a variety. So I actually decided to go back to Isaiah chapter 1 and preach about worthless worship. And could I actually engage in that? Now, I had already preached this in our church a while back, but again, I shoved my notes aside, I cracked open the books again, and came up with a, an outline and, and a paper. My wife always reads it so she can correct all my grammatical mistakes and, you know, doesn't always change my theology, but she changes the grammar. And she looked at it and she said, well, this is better than the message you preached. I wish you'd preach this one. I thought, oh, great. And I looked at it and I thought the same thing. I had a better outline everything. Well, I came almost to that conclusion when preparing this. I thought, you know, I don't think I've looked at it in this way before. At least in the depth of what he did in taking on the form of a servant. So I hope it's just my heart comes out to you this morning and share with you what the Lord did on my heart as I looked at this text and what he said to us. But I want to start with Galatians 4.4 because it says, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law. I have heard that over and over again. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son. And there's a mystery really in those words for the finite mind. When you really begin to contemplate that the eternal pre-existent God and His eternal pre-existent Son that have existed forever and ever had decreed at some point in time that He would reveal Himself in a new way to finite creatures. And you're just, at least for me, and I begin to try to contemplate and consider spiritual heavenly realities it just 
kind of takes me aback. You know, when the fullness of time, God in eternity sent His Son here to be born of a woman. Of course, the next thing that entered my mind as I was meditating upon this again is how irritating and appalling actually it is that there are people who would claim to be Him. False Christ, false messiahs. I mean, if there is one person you want to pretend to be, don't imitate Him. Don't pretend to be Him because there's just no comparison. As a matter of fact, the judgment against that, I can only imagine, will be so severe because there's nobody that compares to the pre-existent Son of God who came in the flesh. And so as I try to mine the depths of this in my own life, and it's not just for this study, it's every week. I mean, my life is in Him. Everything I have is in Christ. And so as I try to dig into that and understand that how can this eternal being visit the finite, how would He do it, and what would it look like, what are the ramifications? Well, we find that in this issue of the kenosis. We, we get to explore it a little bit as we look at what does it mean that He emptied Himself? What does that mean in Philippians 2? And I'd invite you to turn there because that's where we'll spend our time this morning. I will quote many other passages, but this is the central passage. This is the place that we go to understand the kenosis, the, the emptying of Himself when He took upon himself the form of a bondservant. And so in the context in verse 5, and, and really I want to talk a little bit more about this later and possibly like application to this, the, the whole chapter. But in verse 5 we'll begin there. It says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, I will stop there for the sake of time. I did that one time. I, I preached on this, and, and, or at least quoted it, mentioned it from um, a, the pulpit, and someone really got mad at me after the service because they said, well, you should have read 9, 10, and 11 because you just left them kind of humbled. And I, Well, there is so much there. I, I would love to go to the exaltation and think about all of that. But we don't have time this morning. And so we'll pause there and and let's back up a little bit here before we we get into the the no reputation and the the emptying himself. Was this something that was well thought about in the past? Was this something that uh, even the writers of Scripture understood would happen? You know the answer to that, of course. I mean, when we talk about the Incarnation, the one place you turn to all over every time is Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the One to be ruler in Israel, whose 
goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Scripture had it. It predicted this time would come, the fullness of time when God would send forth His Son. This visit from the Eternal was no accident. It wasn't something that needed to happen because of something that we did. No, it was decreed from long ago. I mean, I can't even explain it. It's from everlasting. This visit from the eternal Son of God wasn't just planned. There was also purposeful. Hebrews 10. I love this passage. Hebrews 10, 5-7. It says, Therefore, when He came into the world, speaking of Christ, He said, and it's as if He's having a conversation with His Father, preparing to come. And He says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of Me to do Your will, O God. Now, there are so many passages you could go to to sum it up. What was His will? What did He do? I would just use this one. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. He came to do the will of God. And what was that? To become sin for you and me. So that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. That was the reason for the visit in its very essence, at its core. Was to do what God had said. "Ah, These things are fine, but you, in your body... In coming to earth, only you can do what I truly desire. So how did he do this? Well, back to Philippians 2. It says there, who being in the form of God. Now, just a casual reading of that, I think we would all just take that as what it means. That Jesus was God. That's He is God. And when you break down the words, Paul does use interesting words for being and for form. And and really, it simply just carries with it this idea of form. That every quality, characteristic of of something, it's all there. And so, everything that makes up God is who Christ is. He is the form of God. He is everything. All the attributes, all the characteristics, He's God. And He was always God. Being in the form of God. There wasn't a point in time where He became God. He was God in all of its Godness, as it were. In the fullness of deity, He came. That's Christ. And so, we have this then... This statement from Paul that he was God. But did Christ himself verify this? I mean, was this just something that Paul later said, you know, and added to the, our doctrine that, well, he was God? Well, no. And he did say it, but Christ himself said it as well. Think about some of these passages. John, of course, he's proving the deity of Christ. I mean, that is such a wonderful book. 
In John 6, he says, I have come down from heaven. I have come down from heaven. You can't get any more specific from that. At least, who's in heaven? Well, God's in heaven. And then he says, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, the Jews complained about that because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. So again, he repeats it later. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. And then again, in the next chapter, uh, it says, Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this and said to them, does this offend you? And then this. If that offends you, how about this? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? You don't like that? Well, what if you watch me go back to where I came from? Then again, in a few chapters later, John chapter 8, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Well, you know the response. They took up stones to throw at him. Because they knew what he was saying. He was claiming to be the pre-existent, self-existent God. Jesus himself claimed it. Well, in John 10, he said, I and the Father are one. They took up stones again to stone him. I mean, Paul's not the only one. He says it in Colossians. The writer of Hebrews says, In the last days he's spoken to us by his son, who is he's appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. I mean, before the world's existed, it's saying Christ was there creating and making the world. Paul, the writer of Hebrews, Jesus himself claimed to be God. So in Philippians, who being in the form of God, Christ, the preexistent Son of God, what did he do? Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now other translations have used it as this. He did not regard it as a prize to be grasped at. He did not regard it as something to be held on to at all costs. So what did he do? He took on another form. He didn't exchange it. He didn't change his the form of God or, or this being. He took on another form. And he did not hold on to this equality, as it were, of, with God. I mean, this is, this is where it just begins to become overwhelming. He is the fullness of the deed. He is all God, all the characteristics, everything about God. Christ is. But He doesn't consider that something He must hang on to. I have to hold on to this. Because if I let go of this being, this, this, all these things right here, who I am in my very essence, if, if I... Well, in other words, He's not like us. You know, if we get in a position of power, or if we get into some level in some corporation, we don't want to let go of that. We don't want to demote ourselves and take on another form, as it were, another position. But Christ, looking at His equality with God in everything that that is, said, I'd be willing to do something else. Not 
change who I am, but do something else. Take on another form. It just blows my mind to consider what he did. He left glory. He had glory that you and I just, let's be honest, we haven't been there. We don't know. I mean, what kind of glory did Christ have before He came? Well, we know one thing for sure. It had to be veiled. I mean, He could not reveal Himself to us in His full glory. We would be like dead men. But He had that before, and He didn't hold on to that. He didn't say, okay, I am not releasing my glory. Okay, if I'm going to do something, if I'm going to go to the creature, I'm not going to give that up. They're going to have to see me in all my glory. No, He didn't hold on to that. He said He could let go of that. doesn't mean He didn't possess it, but He was willing for it to be veiled. What about all His power? Oh, the one who could speak into existence the worlds when there was nothing. There's great power there. All the attributes of deity and the assertion of those things. I mean, no one told him what to do. He could do what he wanted. And yet in the kenosis, in the incarnation, he said, I'm not going to hold on to those rights. As some people say, the privileges. I will not grasp onto that. I will empty myself. And so what did he do? He took upon himself the form of a bondservant. It said he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. And this is where the heresies begin. I mean, this is where there have been volumes written. What does it mean that he emptied himself? Because that wasn't a translation in older versions. It said he emptied himself. And so some would say, well, he, he, didn't, he ceased to be God. He, he was once God, but then he became only man. Well, Paul deals with that here by saying that he came in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance of man. He, he makes a, a clear distinction between saying that he became man versus the likeness and appearance. And I don't think he uses those words any, for any other reason except to make sure that we understand that it wasn't an exchange. He wasn't just changing from God and to man. Because if that happened, then when he died, he would have died. That would have been it. But he was God, and he had the power to rise from the dead. And so, emptying himself, what does that mean? Now, I don't mean to be trite, I'm not trying to be funny, but there was no conversation in heaven just before the Hebrews 10 conversation, and he said, okay, what are you going to empty yourself of? Because you certainly can't bring everything down there because it's just not going to work. So why don't you leave some of your attributes here? Okay, put those away on the shelf. Your glory, definitely got to leave that here because they'll just be blown away. So you just put those things over there, my son, and you go down there and you live with them for a while. And then when you get back here, I'll give it all back to you and I'll exalt you and everything will be fine. They didn't have that conversation. He did not cease to be fully God. 
and yet come and be fully man. And the key to it all, in my opinion, is those words taking the form of a bondservant. When form in the form of God carries with it all the characteristics and qualities that make something what it is, and he was in the form of God, everything that makes God who he is, that's who Christ is. Now he's coming in another form. He's still all God. But he's going to reveal himself and live in a new way. And that is in the characteristics and qualities of a servant. Think about that. Think about what Christ did. That's the emptying. Martin Lloyd-Jones just kind of gave an illustration of it by saying that, you know, you take metal... All the characteristics of metal. There you have it. And it is, let's say, it's been made into the form of a sword. Well, if you smelt it and you burn it and you reshape it, you can make a plowshare out of it. Did it change the, the essence, the quality, the characteristics that made it metal? No. It's just in another form. It looks a little different. But it didn't change in its quality. And Christ did not change in His Godhead, but He came in this new form. And that of a servant. Hmm. Wow. He said in John chapter 5, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Do slaves have masters? Do slaves have someone over them? Yes. Do slaves get the right to do anything they want? No. And, I, and this is treading on holy ground. But this is the, the anthropos, the God-man. The mystery of that is that Christ was willing to take on this form and all of its characteristics and qualities. And with that, that meant that He was going to yield His life, submit His life to the Father by being a servant. And so, it's in this taking the form of a bondservant that really explains the details of the kenosis. What, what does the God-man look like in this? Well, in becoming a servant, he was born and looked just like you and me. It was a normal birth. Now, granted, you know, we've just gone through Christmas. There were miraculous things that happened. Surrounding his birth, there were angels that declared good tidings to shepherds and you name it. But overall, when he went to be circumcised, and after that, uh, yeah, he came to the temple. But we don't know much more. Why? Because he wasn't, well, in the eyes of the world, really that special. Because he came as a servant. Now you think about that. Now, if I were God... And I'm going to send my son who has all power, all authority, you name it. I mean, what if this passage had said, um, who being in the form of God, 
made himself a reputation and came as a warrior. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you think that would be a good idea? He took the form of a warrior. So he's God, but he's going to come down and reveal himself to man, and so he's going to become a warrior. And, um, well, he's got all the characteristics and qualities needed for a warrior. He's got all power. So can you imagine? He could rule and conquer. and, and just, I mean, Alexander the Great, who? I mean, no, Christ would be the great one. He would come and he would just take over because he would have all those characteristics of a warrior at his disposal. Well, what if he came and made himself a reputation of being a king? Well, isn't that what the Jews wanted? Weren't they a little frustrated with him? Well, it was great because at times... You know, he made a little loaf of bread and some fish into a lot of food. And, and they heard rumors about Cana, you know, water into wine. And they could not mistake there were people getting healed and people that were possessed that were no longer possessed. This guy was exhibiting characteristics of God. And some kingly things that they might like. You know, hey, if he's our king and he can just make food... We're going to be the best kingdom in the world. We won't have to grow crops. We won't have to do anything. He's just going to provide it for us. Well, that's not what he came as. And so when they began to not understand, as it were, but when they began to see that this isn't the form he took, this isn't the way that God intended for his son to come, they began to despise him. They began to reject him. To the point so much so that they would spit on him, mock him, beat him, and just kill him. And hatred exists to this day. So that I read of a a Jewish young man who got in the face of one of our missionaries in New York and said, do you really believe Jesus is coming back? And... The pastor, missionary, said, of course. He said, well, if he comes back, we'll kill him again. Well, not going to happen. But in the decree of God, when Christ came in the form of a servant, it was decreed that he would die. So he could have done any other thing to show himself powerful, omnipotent, omniscient. But he took the form of a servant. So he was born in obscurity, really. He lived in obscurity. He took on a common trade. He, 30 years, we just don't know much about what he's doing. And he got tired He had a normal human body. He was hungry. He would get sleepy. He would get thirsty. He was a man. Fully man. Just like us. And Hebrews tells us, therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
For, and then later, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. So in this kenosis, in this incarnation, in this God-man coming to earth, he was a man. He was a servant. At the same time, he was called the only begotten Son of God. He did accept worship, which was only due to God, but he accepted worship. And he exercised the prerogatives of deity, such as forgiving sin. Oh, that irritated them. But he would forgive sin. And he also displayed attributes of omniscience and omnipotence. When you call him a raging sea, when you know things about people at a certain well... Uh, It just kind of blows their mind. I mean, he is displaying his Godhead, the fullness of deity. Now, here's where it gets to the point where I can't go any further because I have a finite mind and I cannot fully explain how it all worked. Because he was fully God. He was fully man. So there were times when it would appear that he did not know something. Who touched me? He wasn't lying. We know that for sure. He meant that. Who touched me? Well, there are other instances when, you know, he, he says, I could do nothing of myself. Or being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That wasn't his choice. He went out there being led by the Spirit. So there's this balance of what Christ had that I can't explain. But God, it wasn't a problem for Him to do it. And so, He came, did not consider Robert to be equal with God, made Himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself. That's the bottom line. Out of all the ways He could have come, He came as a servant, willing to say, those things that I still have, that I still possess, I'm willing to let go of those and not hold on to them for a season so that I can do for a people what they could never do for themselves. Became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Those creatures cannot save themselves. The only way it's possible is if I will humble myself and do it for them. Someone has said, and and I've wrestled with it over time, but I believe that the essence of the statement is true, and I'm not quoting it verbatim, but basically this, this person has said that in order for God to fully reveal Himself to us, this had to happen. Because if He'd come as a warrior, if He'd come as a king, that would be great. We'd understand Him, we'd adore Him, we'd love Him for all of eternity. But we still wouldn't grasp the depth or the significance of His love, care, concern, and humility. I mean, this is our God 
who we're going to worship for all of eternity, would we have known the depth that He would go to for us to display who He really is? You see, there will come a time. Read Revelation 1, Revelation 19. I mean, there's a time when He's going to reveal Himself for who He is. And when John saw it in the vision, he just fell down as a dead person. I mean, you know, He always was that way, but He was willing to keep it hidden for a period. That just is amazing to me. Now, the context of any passage is so important. And where this hits me is that in the context, Paul is encouraging the the Philippians to do what Christ did. Because we tend to do just the opposite. What does it say there in verse 3? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Well... I tend to fall into that. I tend to do things that I want to do and that will build me up. Of all those in eternity past, they had the right to exalt themselves, to lift themselves up would have been Christ. But He didn't. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ did exactly that. He looked out for our interests. How can I... Go through life. How can we as Christians go through life only concerned about us? When the one who could have done it and would have every right to do it did not. B.B. Warfield said, The Lord of the world became a servant in the world. He whose right it was to rule took obedience as his life characteristic. And I believe the seriousness of this is seen in the next few verses. Because he does talk about God highly exalting him. And everyone, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. In other words, he is in control. He has all authority, all power. He's in control of everything. To the glory of God the Father Therefore, verse 12, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absent, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. And he just continues on with some exhortation. But I tell you what, when we begin to grasp the significance of what Christ did in humbling Himself, in the kenosis of emptying Himself, of being willing to take that form of a bondservant, when He was in the form of God in all of eternity past, wow, we ought to obey. I mean, it's just, it's really silly to think that we would not obey this one. And, and at the same time, 
in all reverence and awe. Remember, we will face him as he is. And he is more majestic than we can ever imagine. And we will confess that he is Lord, whether or not our lives are confessing it right now. And so, we're called to obey. Because we have the one example who came and obeyed in everything. And so John said, you know, we beheld His glory, we touched Him, we saw Him. Walk. If you say you abide in Him, you ought to walk as He Himself walked. Let's pray. Our Father, I feel so feeble at times as I contemplate what Your Son has done for us. The mystery that's there, and yet the, the clarity of what Scripture shows, His life, how He lived it as a man, and yet being still God. And Father, we're just overwhelmed that He would come in that form of a bondservant and humbling Himself, the one who did not need to do that. To live a perfect life. To give of His life. To shed His blood. So that we could experience and know Him for all of eternity. These are things angels long to look into. But You have deemed and decreed that we would be the recipients of it. Father, I pray that each day we live in awe and wonder of our majestic Savior who did something so amazing, so wonderful, that for all of eternity we'll be praising You for it. I pray that for each of us we would live lives of obedience, following Christ, walking as He walked, which means, in all its practicality, that we'll look out for the interests of others and not do things for our sake, for the lifting up of ourselves, but for you and for the benefit of others. Help us to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.